Heavy petting here on cliffcentral.com uh, and uh, you're listening to Leanne Mole every Wednesday from 10 a.m. until 11 a.m. Lots coming up today. We've got uh, a very sad story about the Gaza Zoo animals which have been caught in the crossfire. We've also got more from Chris Fallows, the shark man. Uh, the big announcement, of course, the winner of a TW Steel Rhino Rage watch worth over 6,000 rand. Uh, we also now reveal the third most popular dog breed in South Africa. And speaking of dogs, we meet Missy Moo. Is that her name, Missy That's Moo? That's her name, yes. <laughs> From Woodrock Animal Rescue, and I've got Estelle here with me. Um, Missy Moo needs a forever home, so we'll be chatting about her too. Let's get right into that, um, Estelle. Firstly, what's, what's, tell us what's happening at Woodrock at the moment. Um, what's the latest? How is everything going in your fairly new um, premises? Okay. Uh, the premises have been going for five years. It's not that new. And Woodrock have been existing for 22 years, actually, as I believe one of the oldest shelters, Leanne. Yes. Um, and what's happening new is that uh, nothing new other than the uh, cash-strapped yeah. uh, demands on the increased costs are rising, and that's the general realization of animal welfare. The good no. part of it all is that we are recognized by all the SPCAs and we're welcomed by the SPCAs to help them to, help them to do the work that we all want to do, get done properly. Yeah, because I mean, as we know, it's not it's not always possible for the SPCA to keep these animals um, on their premises, and that uh, they do need to get rid of them at some yes, stage. Yeah. And no, that's absolutely. probably where you come in as well. Yes. Yeah, and proudly we stand pro-life, completely pro-life. Um, not that I'm knocking anybody else; it's just one of our policies. Yeah, um, and now you've got you've obviously got a lot of thoroughbred dogs. I mean. Um, I came through to you once with my mum, yes. and you had a beautiful Belgian um, shepherd, uh, or Swiss shepherd. Swiss shepherd. That's what yeah, she yes. is, yes. Um, she's absolutely gorgeous, just to give you an update, uh, Maisie. Yes. She's um, adapted really well, and uh, she in, in now lives with my little brother's dog, or my brother's little dog, rather. Okay. He's not so little. Yes. Um, uh, and her name is Daisy, and she looks as if she could be Maisie's niece. Oh, precious. So the two of them look absolutely beautiful together, and they get on really well. Um, okay, so we've got a doggy with us here. Her name is? Missy Moo. Because? She looks like a cow. <laughs> <laughs> no, she looks like a little pig. In fact, we did have a pig recently, which we rehomed, and the two of them would run in the hills together, and they looked alike uh, from a distance. And uh, sadly, Missy Moo is the way she is because she was from a breeding circumstances where she was tied up on a chain. Um, we all know about the pit bulls and the breeding of the pit bulls, which we can't go into it because that's a whole new session on yeah. its own. And Missy is one of the ones that are rehomable. We have seven of them that aren't rehomable, and Missy is one of their breeding dogs that is rehomable. She's obesely overweight. We've just taken her to Dr. Denver, who's given her the clear bill of health, and she has no thyroid problem. Okay. So this is so, just from being tied up and yes. the fact that she has to get out of her kennel. She well, it's can't kind be locked of, up. It's kind of like me with lack of exercise. <laughs> uh, let's, just, let's just hear her. She's quite a loud doggy. Yes. Go, Missy. Pull her dog. Hello, Mommy. And Missy smiles. That's her. Oh, yeah, that's her. <laughs> she's really loud. Um, she, yeah, she's got a huge smile on her face. Um, she even looks like she could be cross Daffy, but I know that. No, this is the real deal. This, this is Pitbull in its, it's real. It's because she's yes. so fat. She's so enormous. So her face is disintegrated just a little bit. It's not as square as it should yes, be. Yes, yeah. Um, and she's also so she is animal friendly, child friendly, mm-hmm. sleeps on the bed. She adores animals. There is, uh, this is not a fighter. This yes. dog is, 
as the, the, the saying goes, teach me to be the dog you want me to be. And this dog is tailor-made for a home. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, just recently we spoke about uh, pit bulls here on Heavy Petting and um, the fact that it's it's the humans who train them to be like they are. That's quite um, right. And if, if they weren't trained by humans, they'd be absolutely like any other dog. Yes. Um, if they weren't trained by bad humans, that is. Um, uh, in fact, I, I had a friend who had a pit bull and she was the most beautiful, calm, loving dog that I've ever known. Um, and I just hope that people, dogs, sorry, like Missy Moo and people like you can help everyone get over this bad stigma of, Absolutely, of pit bulls. Yeah. No, Leanne, you're right. Um, Leanne, that's another thing that we have to actually, you know, I read somewhere just this week um, about the myths of a shelter. And people believe you're getting a damaged dog from a shelter. That is not the case. Yeah. Our dogs are pristine, beautiful, clean, and healthy. Yes. And our cats. We've got 10 cats as well, which we never move. People don't want a cat. They want a kitten. Yes. People don't want a dog. They want a puppy. That's where Woodrock make a difference. We mm. prefer or we specialize in rehab and rehoming. It's very easy to rehome a puppy. Everybody wants a puppy. Mm. And they're cute. But the sad the sadness of this whole thing is that people now, this cute puppy doesn't it doesn't maintain this cute element. Mm. And they become damaged dogs because people do not put the energy and effort into bringing the dog up the way that we, that we want an animal to be. They either kill the animal with love and spoil mm. and then have to immigrate and uh, the problem becomes woodrocks. Yes. Or the shelter that takes in the, the, elder do- the older dog. And then you have the, 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 the breeds like the, 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 the purebreds, mm. which um, are the Bostons, the Scotties. The peaks, we have them at Woodrock. The purebred dogs, we have them at Woodrock. Demand. And I mean, these and are, these are, but they've been damaged dogs because yeah. people have not given them the right element to become a dog. They've allowed them on the furniture. They've allowed them to be, to chew the washing, lock them in the courtyard. And the dog is not taught to be the dog. It doesn't walk on a lead, can't get into a car. You can't give the dog a pull. So they haven't taught the dog that you can put the dog, your hand in the dog's mouth at your Demand, mm. not when the dog wants to put their, their mouth over your over hand. Over your hand, the other way around. You know, yeah. they, they, they teach me to be the dog you want me to be. I can't stress that enough. And, I mean, you're so good at this. I've, I've always noticed and noted your, your way with animals. You're able to read their behavior really, really well. Thanks and, very much. And almost match them to an owner. We like to think so. And I don't know if you remember when you did come with your entire yes. family. It was a huge democratic decision. <laughs> um, I was greeted by, I must just say, about 20 donkeys who yes. were absolutely gorgeous and even walked us back to our car. And bit you on the arm, if I'm not mistaken? No, on the ass. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I got bitten on the bum. <laughs> By an ass. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And they, they are our pride and joy. Uh, we do not ride them. We do not, we, we feed them real food. They sleep in a, uh, in a, a pen and they are treated like donkeys and we absolutely adore them. Those are our babies. But uh, back to the uh, uh, the rehoming. Yes. We do not force a dog onto anybody because it has to come from within. There has to be a natural uh, draw towards you and your dog. Mm. And as with your your dog, mm. um, we did not push her onto you. I knew the moment that your family saw her, it was a match in heaven. And very easily I could have pushed her onto you, but yeah. I couldn't do that. Yeah. But, I mean, you, you knew exactly how to describe how um, she'd been treated in the past and how yes. it affected her behavior currently. Sadly enough, the home that she came from bred mm. another litter and phoned me to ask me, and I'd love to say his name on air to blacklist this man, but yeah. nevertheless, having said that, uh, would I please rehome his litter once again? And I said, hell no. No. Give me the dogs and I will sterilize the dogs. And he still would not allow me to do that because it's against his 
um, principles. Uh, you know, the frustrations. It's the frustrations it of your work. You do walk away from it, and sometimes you have to laugh because if we don't laugh, we are going to cry. Yes, that's it. Okay, so um, what do we do? What type of person or family or home would Missy Moo fit into? Our, our very big, fat... Um, there is a lady here. who has put in an application, and she really did her homework. I was so impressed with her. Cindy, she came through... She. She booked Missy Moo last week during the week, filled in an application form and came through to meet Missy on the weekend. And she didn't leave it there. She didn't just jump at Missy and say, this is the dog she wants. She saw uh, that Missy isn't going to be a walk in the park with this obesity because she is going to need special food and special diet food and exercise. And there is effort put into the baby. Um, you can still hear her breathing. Yeah, that's no, great. Um, <laughs> and uh, from... From Woodrock, she went to another shelter who also, who I have such admiration for, who also specialize in the difficult dogs, the, the dogs with special needs. And um, she phoned me afterwards and I wanted her, truthfully, of course I want Missy to get a home. Yeah. But the shelter that she went to, they they overextended a little bit and I went, I thought, well, please just take one of ours. Don't leave it there. Anyway, she has phoned me back on Monday to ask me had I done the, the thyroid test on Missy, which I hadn't, and we've done it today. So maybe she'll still take Missy. Well, if she doesn't, I'm sure that um, we've got some very interested people who are listening right now, um, and I can vouch for the fact that she's a really friendly, lovely dog. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Estelle, from Woodrock, um, for coming in today. At yeah, short thank notice. You very, yes, and I'm actually honoured and nice to see you again. Thank <laughs> you, you very, very much. I just um, wish your station all the very, very best. Thank you. And I'm, I'm sad to see Missy go, so I'll, I'll have to have a photograph with her. We'll come back in a little bit um, after about uh, after a song. We'll come back. Took a deep breath in the mirror. He didn't like it when I wore high heels, but I do. Turn the lock and put my headphones on He always said he didn't get this song But I do I do Walked in expecting you'd be late But you got here early and you stand and wave I walked to chair out and help me in and you don't know how nice that is but I 
Heavy plating on Cliff Central with myself, Leanne Mole, every Wednesday, 10 until 11 a.m. If you want to give us a call, please do 0861-555-189. You can also message us to show directly on WeChat if you're listening to us uh, from WeChat on the Cliff Central channel. Uh, let's get back, back into animals in the news, which we usually start our show with, uh, but we were pleasantly interrupted by Missy Moo, the friendliest put bull ever from uh, Woodrock with Estelle, uh, and she is looking for a home. I'll put a picture of her up on my Twitter. That's Leanne Mole, L-E-I-G-H-A-N-N-M-O-L, and you can have a look at her there. Um, she has a potential mom who is interested in taking her, um, but uh, it may not come through. So if you are interested, just let me know, and I'll, I'll put you in touch. Um, obviously, you need to be matched perfectly with Missy Moo, as that's Estelle's um, way of doing things, which, which I truly admire. Um, a story that's not that fantastic for us to hear at the moment. Um, it's something that we do need to know about, though, and that's that animals at a Gaza zoo have been caught in the crossfire in over a month of fighting now between Israel and Palestinian militants. Many of the animals have been killed, um, and those that remain are living in filth with the dead bodies of their former cage mates. Now, Shadi Hamad, the Albisan Zoo's director, says that the animals died as a result of Israeli airstrikes, and the zoo has been almost completely destroyed. And from the other side, an Israeli army spokesperson saying that the military is looking into allegations that it fired missiles in the park area. Politics aside, um, the zoo was established by the Hamas government in 2008 as a tourist village, and the animals were actually all smuggled into Gaza through tunnels that connected to Egypt. And then access to these tunnels was blocked last year with the asking of the Egyptian president, Mohamed Morsi, an ally of Hamas. So, yes, putting aside politics, let's hear what's happened um, with these animals who've unfortunately been caught in the crossfire. This is the AFP news agency. The lions at the al village in Gaza can hardly move around. Their enclosure is now full of debris. When a missile exploded a few metres away during the month-long conflict with Israel, it smashed in the roof of their cage. Nearby, the jackals pace around their tiny cage in a fog of panic. A baboon plays with the remains of his former cage mate. Dead monkeys litter the ground. The entranceway, a scene of total devastation. You can see that the cages the animals are badly damaged. When you see it, it makes you sad because they are in a jail now. During the war and during shelling, a lot of the cages were damaged and there was a lot of shrapnel. There is a lot of debris around. Farid has had no formal training as a zookeeper, but he says he comes every day to feed the remaining animals. Around eight monkeys, a crocodile and several birds were killed during the fighting. And around the zoo lie the remnants of the war. These are believed to be rocket launchers used by Palestinian fighters to fire at Israel. Maybe there was a base around al village or next to it. But the enemy decided and insisted on punishing Al-Bissan. Other animal enclosures in Gaza were luckier and were spared rocket attacks like the one that damaged the Al-Bissan village. But the director of Jabalia Zoo says despite being physically unharmed, the war had a psychological impact on the captive animals. It was the noise that really affected the animals here. The sound from the bombing terrified the animals. 
When the birds heard the shelling, they would take flight and flap around the enclosure in panic because they were so scared. With so much destruction across Gaza, it is unlikely repairs to the Al-Bissan village will start anytime soon, which means that the animals will have to endure the terrible conditions for weeks, if not months to come. Very sad story there coming from Gaza Zoo. Um, and uh, more animals in the news, this time from the U.S., something that we might talk about at some stage um, and we'll look into it, and that's the hunting season when it comes to alligators in Alabama in the U.S. Um, it is hunting season there at the moment. Uh, this is very well monitored, um, but as I say, we'll get into that another time. What I do want to tell you is that Alabama hunters have caught an alligator that weighs 450 kilograms. Now, I wish you could see the picture of this thing. It's, it's been hauled back onto something that what they call a backhoe to, to lift the animal out of the water. It's the largest ever legally killed by an Alabama hunter. It was caught by Mandy and John Stokes and uh, their two children. Um, and a, f- a first attempt to pull the animal out of the water completely destroyed a wench which they assembled to hoist most average gators, as they call them. But, yeah, if you can imagine it, 4.5 meters long and weighing more than 450 kilograms. More animals in the news, this time from uh, Idaho in the U.S. Um, a woman who lives in a, an apartment building in Ohio, in Idaho, rather. She's in the 10th floor in this uh, 10-story apartment, and um, she had quite a surprise while sitting in her sitting room. Um, an owl flew in through her window and managed to open up her cage of canaries, uh, swooped in, opened the canary, the canary cage, and came beak to beak with these little canaries. Um, the owl did kill one of the canaries and injured the other, um, and then flew straight out of the window again. It was uh, it was, must have been quite a sight for her to see, nothing that you'd expect on a 10th floor of an apartment building. But remember that owls like to be really high up, even above the trees. Um, they roost right at the top of, of trees, and so this would have been quite an easy catch for the for the um, owl, except for the fact that it needed to open up a canary cage. Anyway, the woman says the second canary isn't singing, but it is chirping and eating and drinking, so she thinks it's almost over the trauma. Time for our Help a Horny Friend segment, and uh, we're looking at rhino poaching in South Africa, which continues to be hard hit. Now, for the first time in 10 years, poachers killed an elephant in the Kruger National Park in May, and a second elephant was killed for its ivory tusks this week. Here's CCTV Africa's Renee Calm. Situated in the northeastern corner of South Africa, the Kruger National Park is South Africa's most iconic protected area. Over a million visitors flock here each year to experience the diverse flora and fauna and to catch a glimpse of the world-renowned Big Five, which includes the African elephant. Now authorities fear the estimated 15,000 elephants in the Kruger may become the target of heartless poachers, who are already obliterating elephant herds in other parts of Africa. Elephant poaching is a a commercial crime 
uh, in most of Africa, and it's driven again by organized crime syndicates, often by military groups that are occupying areas. So as those resources run out, it's an in- income stream for them. They're going to try and source it elsewhere as well. Dr. Hofmeyer, who's the head vet at the Kruger, has been working with these large mammals for years. This includes the study of elephant immobilization and translocation. The team doubted this 25 to 30-year-old elephant bull as part of the Kruger National Park's routine research and sampling project. The management team here is determined to ensure that the elephant population in the Kruger continues to receive the best expert care and protection from poachers. We are on high alert for any major poaching interventions. I mean, what we, what's happening in Kruger now is, is basically an armed insurg- insurgency. People are coming with weapons, taking resources that are actually in, in our country and taking them out of the country again illegally. Uh, I mean, it's already present in Mozambique uh, quite significantly, particularly in the northern part of Mozambique, and it's been driven by the Tanzanian uh, crime syndicates, and it's threatening to wipe out the elephants in those areas. The protection of our species, our heritage, our nature conservation heritage is our responsibility. The loss of a big five or a a part of the big five, the loss of an imposing animal like the elephant, apart from being emotional, it is very real in terms of our failure to conserve. And where do you stop that? René Dalcam, CCTV, Letaba in the Kruger National Park. And yes, the time has come in our Help a Horny Friend segment to announce the winner of a competition that we've had loads of entries for over the past three weeks. And that's to win a TW Steel Rhino Rage watch worth over 6,000 Rand. And uh, after a draw, the winner has been revealed and he's online right now, Sponisa Kieswa. Hi, Sponisa. Uh, I don't know if we can hear him there. Sponisa. Nothing there. Okay, well, we'll try and get him back. But uh, anyway, Sponiswa is the very lucky winner of um, a TW Steel Rhino Rage watch. We'll give him a choice of four to choose from. They're absolutely beautiful. Um, there's one ladies and then three men's styles as well. Just to tell you a little bit about them, if you weren't lucky enough to win one, you can buy one and really um, contribute to rhino um, efforts or uh, anti-poaching efforts. That's the TW Steel Oversized Watch brand, which is partnered with the Rhino Action group effort, which is RAGE, to support the fight against rhino poaching in South Africa with the sale of these special edition timepieces. The watch and steel brand has produced four model connections based on its popular canteen-style timepieces. Now, RAGE was actually set up to assist the fight against illegal rhino poaching and specifically designed to be a safe conduit for public contributions to this cause. So that means that a whole committee of volunteer experts, so ecologists, game reserve owners, members of the government, um, they all collectively decide where these contributions to RAGE can be best utilized. And then KPMG ensures that the process of transferring these funds is carried out correctly. Um, so, yeah, we'll try and chat to him a little bit later. Otherwise, I will email him and let him know the very, very, very good news. And we've got him on now. Let's see. Sponiso? Sponiso? No, I think we're going to give up on that one. Anyway. I shall email him, and uh, I'm sure he'll be very excited to know that he's won one of these beautiful watches. Um, well, just having a look at um, the stats lately on elephant poaching in South Africa. In Africa as a whole, um, it's been announced just recently 
that more elephants are being killed by poachers than elephants that are being born each year, and that the problem with elephants poaching may be worse than previously understood. Um, and this is using a newly refined approach to estimate elephant deaths um, that took place in Kenya. It was based in Kenya, and the research took place across Africa. Um, it's been revealed that the, Africa's elephant population is declining at a rate of about 2% annually, something we don't think about, though. And that's why this is such a fine balance between um, uh, nature and nurture here. Elephants are the largest land-roaming animals on Earth. And with that impressive honor comes one drawback. They can leave a trail of destruction while foraging in the bush. Our private game reserves have had to go to great odds to try and manage their populations of elephants in order to balance the local environment in which many species depend. It's a very careful conservational Balancing Act, and uh, here's the CCTV Africa's Travis Andrews to tell us more. The giants of the Big Five. Elephants are some of the most formidable creatures in Africa, and by far one of its largest. But their mammoth size and appetite is something that has to be carefully monitored, because in fenced-off reserves, they're known to cause a significant depletion of natural resources as well as damage to the local ecosystem. At the Pinda Game Reserve in KwaZulu-Natal's Maputa land region, researchers carefully monitor the elephant population and track their movements. It's an important task in understanding how to deal with natural feeding habits, which can become quite destructive. Because of the way that elephants forage, they often push over a lot of trees, um, which is completely natural for elephants, and they leave a lot of broken trees, debris lying around, which um, in terms of other smaller browsers, it allows them to get to leaves that they wouldn't otherwise normally get to. So they, it's a, it plays an important role in the ecosystem, but it does have a negative effect on forests with the small to medium, larger size trees um, that are very, very old and take a very long time to grow. Evidence can be seen here. Branches snapped off from a passing herd, making their way through a sand forest. Yeah, so this is the matriarch that just walked past with the collar. With a population of just over 100, each elephant can be individually identified. It's among a number of conservational efforts, including contraception, in order to keep the elephant population at a manageable size. If we didn't have the immunocontraception, we'd be sitting right now in a, in a huge dilemma where we'd have um, probably double the elephants that, we, that this, this reserve can support. And that's the, um, the idea behind it. So to, uh, not to stop the, the breeding, uh, so we do get sort of three, four, five calves a year, but it's to slow it down. There are, of course, other more practical measures that have been put in place to ensure that the pachyderms don't go into sensitive areas, including this fence that's meant to heed a small warning. It's been up for about six, seven years now, and uh, we've managed to keep them out, obviously through uh, the energize. Well, we've energized the, the wires that you see, so there is a voltage going through it, which they don't like. For now, the research team will continue to monitor the movements and behavior of the elephants and any future impact they may have, not only on the environment, but on all species. A lot of conservational work has gone into the elephant population and their role within the environment, but there's also major concern here because there's been a spike in elephant poaching and those after its prized ivory are not sparing any consideration for the species. That's Andrew, CCTV from South Africa's Maputo land region. And uh, carrying on the conservation conversation, we, uh, I have told you that I've spoken to 
Hank Chalmers over the past three weeks. I call him Hank the Hawkman. Um, he founded Eagle Encounters at Spear outside Stellenbosch. And now, while most of his time is spent rehabilitating, releasing, and conserving these big birds of prey, there is a commercial side to his business too, as happens often. Um, Hank has hand-reared and trained many big birds, and in particular, he uses a hawk to control the pigeon population in the Cape Town CBD. As we learned from Hank last week, pigeon poop can be extremely toxic to humans. Um, and another task that's keeping Hank's hawk busy is showing Egyptian geese on golf courses who the boss is. Let's hear from him. We do a lot of work with, um, on the golf course with the Egyptian geese, eh? like big term. Pearl Valley, um, Washemir and the Zelza have had major problems. Uh, you're talking hundreds of thousands of rands to repair the damage done by geese. Again, it's about the chasing. You okay. know? Now, anything works. You can imagine, even like with pigeons, have little revolving lights. Yeah. Yeah. You know? You put it in the pigeon, go, oh, what's this? And they're scared. A week later, well, nobody's being eaten, so, you know, it's not a problem. Geese are exactly the same. There's all these weird and wonderful things that brought in. Now, what happens is the geese are scared, they leave. A week later, they come back. The difference now with a hawk is they're being chased, and then now and again, their buddy is caught and eaten. That's a huge difference to them. They, they recognize this is a predator, hence, find somewhere else. That's Hank the Hawkman from Eagle Encounters. And if you do visit Spear Wine Farm, take a little tour of the conservatory. There's a lot to see, like Hank's trained hawks in action, and lots of little baby owls to play with. Absolutely gorgeous. Now, um, looking at India, which we don't often look at when it comes to conservation. We are so busy worrying about our own conservation issues in Africa. Um, wildlife poachers are now being hindered by the country's government, the country's government's been so good at protecting majestic endangered animals like tigers and rhinos in the country that the wildlife poachers are now beginning to think a little bit smaller and a little more exotic. So activists say that a whole lot of the country's lesser known species are vanishing from the wild as a result. We've got one example, the Indian pangolin. We know what pangolins are. We have them in Africa too, and they are um, endangered here. Um, the Indian pangolin is a scaly, scaly little critter whose defense mechanism of rolling up into a ball is no help against humans. There's also the star tortoise, which makes a popular pet, and that maxes out at about a foot in length. Those are just two of the species that are being killed or smuggled. And and uh, this is, uh, even though conservation efforts are focusing on big, iconic animals such as tigers and elephants, there's there's a problem underlying here. The blind eyes being turned into turned rather to all these lesser known species and um, suddenly this lucrative trade is exploding um, in India. So yes, we've got animals that have been kept as pets. Others are eaten as well for their purported questionable medical or aphrodisiacal properties as well. Pangolins also killed for their meat, which is considered a delicacy, and their scales, which are used in traditional Chinese medicine. So a lot of uh, game change has to take place with um, activists and the Indian government and uh, remove their focus from the bigger animals and begin to think a little bit smaller. As we continue the conservation conversation, the massive Ariapaima fish is quickly becoming extinct in some parts of the Amazon basin. It's an absolutely ginormous fish. It's bigger than a lot of sharks. And um, here's Newsy Science's Micah Sargent who explains more to us. 
A massive species of fish that used to dominate the Amazon River is quickly dying out in several areas. A recent study of fishing communities in the state of Amazonas, Brazil, found the giant arapaima is already extinct in some parts of the Amazon basin. The BBC notes of the 41 communities researchers studied, arapaima populations were extinct in eight of them. And the giant fish, which typically weighs in at more than 400 pounds, is rapidly disappearing in other parts of the Amazon. So what's the reason behind the Arapaima's rapid extinction? Scientists have a simple answer, overfishing. Live Science quotes a researcher involved in the study who says the Arapaima is just too easy to catch. Arapaima spawn on the edges of floodplain forests and come to the surface to breathe every 5 to 15 minutes when they are easily located and harpooned by fishers using homemade canoes. And with populations growing and the fishing industry finally reaching Amazon villages, the research says these massive fish don't stand a chance. See, there were two competing theories the researchers explored. The first is essentially the idea that overfishing can't cause extinction because fishermen have to move on when supply starts dwindling. The second theory is basically the opposite, that fishing can drive a population to extinction. One of the study's authors said in a statement, bioeconomic thinking has predicted that scarcity would drive up fishing costs, which would increase price and help save depleted species. If that prediction were true, extinctions induced by fishing would not exist, but that is not what has happened. The arapaima isn't the only aquatic creature in the Amazon to recently fall victim to local fishermen. Brazil's Fishing and Aquaculture Ministry announced in June it is in the process of outlawing the fishing of a certain breed of catfish to protect the pink Amazon river dolphin, whose flesh is often used as bait for the catfish. But there was also some good news that came out of the arapaima study. In communities where arapaima fishing is regulated, the species is actually doing pretty well, giving scientists hope that the species could be spared. For Newsy, I'm Micah Sargent. Time for doggy style here on... Uh, Cliff Central and Heavy Petting with me, Leanne Mole, every week Wednesday from 10 till 11 a.m. Um, speaking of doggy style, we had in earlier Missy Moo, the um, very large pit bull terrier um, who is finding, trying to find a home, and she's with Woodrock Animal Center, and we had Estelle bring Missy Moo in earlier. I have put a picture of her up on my Twitter. That's Leanne Mole, L-E-I-G-H-A-N-N-M-O-L. Um, and, yeah, thanks very much for the WeChat messages asking me for that picture to uh, Nicole Hubert. Go and check out my Twitter and you'll see her there. She does have a potential owner, but um, we're not holding out the most hope. So if you if you are interested, just let me know and I'll put you in touch. And speaking of dogs, in Bolivia this week, the special outdoor mass was held on St. Roch's Day. St. Roch is the patron of saint of dogs, the patron saint of dogs rather. So there were actual processions through the streets of the city, as happens every year, Dozens of dog owners gathered to have their pets blessed by a Roman Catholic priest. And there were processions through the streets of the city. It's a, quite a sweet video to, to look at. I'll put that onto my Facebook, which is also Leanne Moore. You can have a look there. Well, we're on to the third most popular dog breed in South Africa. And I'll reveal exactly which breed that is today. Let's recap. Tenth place, the Pomeranian. In ninth place, the Beagle. Eighth is the Staffordshire Bull Terrier, or Staffy. In seventh place, the miniature schnauzer. Sixth place, the bull terrier. Fifth place, which we looked at last week, was the golden retriever. And today we feature the third most popular dog breed in South Africa, the bulldog. Here's what Animal Pets' Dogs 101 says about these snorty, entertaining and lovable dogs. 
They have such a tenacious temperament. And they're so confident that oftentimes they get into situations where sort of the typical pet dog would kind of be looking to their owner for guidance and support. And the bulldog basically is like, whatever, I don't need you. Now this dog has been completely 100% man-made. They've been bred to have these really strong heads and these powerful shoulders and this tight little rear. There's nothing that looks this way naturally. Don't ask a bulldog to swim. Their heavy bodies and short legs aren't built for the water. I love bulldogs because they're funny. I like all the funny sounds that they make and the funny look they have. I like dogs that you can look at and they just make you laugh. While lovable today, ancient bulldogs were so fierce they were banned on the streets of Rome. In 13th century England, the breed earned its namesake by bringing down bulls. So these dogs have got a lot of power behind them and when they want something, they'll knock everybody out of the way to get to what they want. When bull baiting was outlawed in 1835, the breed nearly went extinct. Luckily, a group of bulldog admirers rescued the breed. Breeders then started to breed for dogs with temperaments that were more, more appropriate for companion animals. Look closely and you'll see what made this dog so menacing. Start with the undershot jaw. This protruding underjaw that actually sticks out and shows their teeth. Loose skin actually helped the dog in a fight. Even if gripped by an adversary, it still had maneuverability. They've got these smushy faces with these wrinkles and these jowls, but don't be fooled, these dogs are actually pretty tough. So tough, the face wrinkles help draw blood away from the eyes in a fight. Wide shoulders and a large head give this dog its stocky look. It's a dog with a massive head and a little tiny rear. Because of that shape, bulldogs are often unable to give birth without vet assistance. They don't pass through the birth canal easily, which means they're usually whelped via cesarean section. Bulldogs are also brachycephalic, which means the nose and head are pushed back. Some of them have a very small nostril. It's like taking your nose and pinching it closed. And the other thing is because they're breathing with their mouth open and they're gulping a lot of air, they fart a lot. So you have to either be tolerant of that or, um, or get lots of air freshness. So they may not be the most polite dogs, but English Bulldogs know how to capture the imagination. They remain the national dog of England. During World War II, bullies were referred to as the Churchill dog because they exemplified the courage and strength of England. Churchill owned poodles, though, not bulldogs. Generally, the English bulldog does not do well in the heat. If you live in a warmer climate, a bulldog might not be the right dog. These dogs don't exactly toe the line when it comes to training. They want to do things their way, and they've got the muscle and the power to do it. If you want to do it on your terms, you're not going to get anywhere. Nope, nope. Okay. Grooming bulldogs is a daily chore for owners. You really need to get in there and clean those folds. These folds are areas where moisture can collect, and when that happens, it can cause a skin infection. The English bulldog is considered one of the least healthy breeds. 
One thing about bulldogs is they get many, many congenital or hereditary diseases. They can get a number of different heart diseases as well as diseases involving their orthopedic system. The English bulldog is not for those offended by slobber and smell. But when the dog fits in, it's instant love. They love to be in the company of their family and they do really well with children. Bulldogs do well in apartments, but not so well in heat. The breed's life expectancy is low and there are a lot of health concerns. Those wrinkly folds require daily attention. Bulldogs do what they want, so training can be a challenge. It takes a special kind of person to care for this dog, but in the right kind of family, the bulldog is a loving dog. If you want a dog for loving, it's the English bulldog. Let's just recap our cause of the week as we uh, sit in our doggy-style position for today. Um, last week was the South African Guide Dogs Association for the Blind. Now, their big annual fundraising event takes place this Sunday. Um, it's a show at Santon's Auto and General Theatre on the Square, featuring music, comedy, jazz, dance, and classical music. It's called Guide Dogs Gala Variety Concert, Leading Artists Performing for Leading Dogs. There are two performances only, and on just the one day, that's the Sunday, 3 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. Uh, so you can book your tickets online at strictlytickets.com. Tickets cost 250 rand. And the entire cost of your ticket benefits the SA Guide Dogs Association. Performers include Mark Banks, Michael DePinner, Sito, Fiona Ramsey, Helen Dubois, who you've probably heard on Cliff Central, and Des and Dawn Lindberg. So you can get your tickets at strictlytickets.com. And that's for this Sunday uh, on Nelson Mandela Square. Um, we take a look now at some interesting discoveries that are made in the animal world. And uh, this is something that... Everybody wants to know about the animal that holds the answer to immortality. Here's Animalist News with that information. Hey, what's up, guys? I'm Alex Farnham, and this is Animalist News Uncaged. What would you do if you could live forever? In my opinion, floating around for eternity really doesn't sound that much fun. But that's exactly what one specific type of jellyfish called Toratopsis natricula does. Or in other words, the immortal jellyfish. When the immortal jellyfish encounters a life or death situation, like starvation, it reverts its cells to become a baby in a process called transdifferentiation. These creatures turn themselves into blobs and recycle cells and muscles. Muscle cells convert to sperm or eggs, while cells become all new muscles. Essentially, it rebirths itself. As far as we know, these little jellies can do this over and over and over again, possibly even infinitely. But immortality doesn't necessarily mean that these creatures are indestructible. These jellyfish die all the time. Ooh, so sad. The only catch to their godlike power is that they need to be sexually mature to use it. That means that baby jellyfish or polyps are able to die from sickness, starvation, or predators. By studying these incredible sea creatures, scientists are hoping to learn more about human death and disease. Not to mention regeneration. Man, to be immortal. <laughs> that would be awesome. Dogs have nine lives. I think you're talking about cats. No, it's dogs. Oh, I'm pretty sure it's cats. I know because I'm a dog. So, what would you do if you were immortal? Let me know in the comments below. Don't forget to subscribe, share this with your friends, and I'll see you hairy mammals next time. More discoveries on heavy pacing here on Cliff Central, and that's a group of paleontologists who've unearthed a treasure trove of ancient bones 
inside a cave in Wyoming in the United States. Now, among the remains are bones that belong to ancient American horses, cheetahs, and lions. Here's uh, Jasmine Bailey from Newsy Science with more. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Well, in this case, it's more like lions, horses, cheetahs, and bison. But don't be afraid. Researchers believe these particular animals haven't roamed the earth in about 100,000 years. The remains of these ancient animals were discovered in Wyoming's Natural Trap Cave. Located in Bighorn Canyon National Park, the Natural Trap Cave is about 80 feet deep and 15 feet wide at the entry. Over 30,000 specimens have been collected from the cave over the years, mostly from extinct animals. Among those, the North American lion, one of the largest cats ever to exist. It's believed to be about 20% bigger than the modern-day African lion. Many other animals, including the remains of smaller ones like birds and lizards, were also found but have yet to be properly examined. What's unusual about this cave is a very high concentration of quite strange carnivores most people wouldn't even know about. The news ledge notes since the cave's discovery in the 70s, officials have blocked off its entrance to keep people and animals from falling through, which is exactly what's believed to have happened to the animals paleontologists have discovered. Over the millennia, thousands of animals have fallen to their deaths. Preserved below the surface, are bones dating all the way back to the Ice Age. As fossils are discovered, researchers from Des Moines University bring the bones back to be examined. But there's something very special about the preservation of these fossils. As Viral Global News reports, the cave's cool and moist atmosphere aided in preserving the bones, many of which were found buried safely under about 30 feet of sediment. The temperature proved ideal for ensuring the DNA remained intact over such an extensive period. One researcher told CNN some of the bones we're finding there have collagen in them. That's where you can get the ancient DNA. There is so much to dig. We have two more years for funding that we can be out there, so we are going to try to dig up as much as we can. The study of the natural trap cave is the first in more than 30 years. Researchers say a big goal is to find out more about the DNA structure of the now extinct animals, along with other information like their diet. For Newsy, I'm Jasmine Bailey. As mentioned, I was in Cape Town just recently to chat to Chris Fellows of Apex Shark Expeditions. Now, on his boat trips in False Bay, you'll see white sharks, and you're very likely to see a white shark preying on a seal. Quite a spectacular thing to see, and we found out that uh, this shark guy, or shark man as I call him, has a real soft spot for the seals. And um, he does feel for them, and he does explain how each animal is fighting for their life, and how it's, uh, you know, it's if the shark doesn't eat, well, it's going to be bad for the shark. So we do have to get out over these um, little fears that we have and insecurities. Well, um, on another note, I did ask him about the routes that they take when they're out on the sea and whether they'd figured these out from by themselves, the, the best paths, or if they were told. Let's hear from him. Okay, I'm not sure why that sound's not coming through. Um, it seems to be playing on my side. Um, yeah, oh well. <laughs> we'll have to bring that to you a little bit later. We'll try and see what went wrong. Um, in the meantime, let's go to a song because when we come back, we'll have something about a bug club. Yep, that's a bug eating club in Tokyo. We'll have more. I used to bite my tongue. 
Heavy petting here on Cliff Central. It's Katy Perry with Raw. The Eye of a Tiger. Get it? Heavy petting tiger. Ha uh-huh. ha. Um, we were busy talking a little bit earlier about Chris Fallows. He's the shark man. Um, and uh, how he chooses his roots when he goes out on shark expeditions. I was very lucky that in 1996, a colleague and I were really the first people to successfully work at Seal Island with the Great Whites. There were people that had tried before, but that uh, erroneously gone there during the, the summer months when you, logic tells you there are lots of seal pups around, that's when the sharks are going to be there. But that's actually not the case at all. When the seals are first born, they don't have a thick layer of blubber on them. They develop that layer of blubber after suckling mom's energy-rich milk. So over six, seven months, they build this layer of blubber up. And that's when the sharks feed on them because the, the energy gain through the fat is what sharks are all about when they feed. So um, <clears throat> we are very lucky to, to start working at Seal Island and having had a bit of experience at Dyer Island in we learned that the sharks were primarily there in winter. And we started looking at Seal Island in winter and sure enough, we, we found the sharks there. And in terms of the, the natural predation and where we work, there are certain areas around Seal Island where you have more chance of seeing the hunting than others. And it was just really through trial and error, spending time out there. There was no guidebook to mm. know how to find the predation or how it all yeah. works. It was just spending a lot of time in the field and slowly but surely looking at and understanding the indicator species such as the kelp gulls, what water currents were doing, when the seals go out to feed, how when they come back on their own they're often individuals, how certain areas are preferred by the sharks and, than others. And by keeping data on every single trip, and I, you know, I may, I, I'm a, at pains to point out I'm not a scientist or a researcher, I'm what is referred to as a naturalist, a person who's just fascinated by nature. But um, by keeping data on every trip, we developed a, a very good idea of how, where, and when things work. And even having said that, we're certainly not experts, but um, yeah, it's a tremendous, a tremendous place to work, and you can't but be fascinated by trying to learn more about yeah. the, the ins and outs of what goes on there. And I mean, here in South Africa, when we when we talk about great whites and seals, <clears throat> we're pretty much in the thick of it. It's not like we are. Um, like other tourist companies who have to chum and attract attention and all of that sort of thing. You're in the thick of it right here. It's happening in front of you. Yeah, look, I mean, you do to a certain extent have to put baits in the water to get the sharks to come up to the boat. You know, every operator, including ourselves, when you're doing work with the sharks, you do do that to a certain extent. Mm. But in terms of the natural predation, what our company really specializes in, it's 100% natural. Mm. There's nothing that that we do or knowingly do that induces sharks to chase, catch, kill, or enhance their success rate with the seals. And, you know, most of what we do, most of our guests that join us come primarily to see the sharks hunting the seals. So it's a case of just picking the right area around the island, remaining a respectful distance away, and watching how the event plays out in front of your eyes. In terms of getting the sharks up to the boat, um, for guests to see, or in some cases to cage dive with, you do have to place a bait in the water. The... The contentious point comes in, in in terms of what you place in the water, how you handle the sharks when you get them, and do you let the sharks take the bait or not. And we go to, to pains to firstly make sure that the sharks are always handled in a very respectful manner. All our staff and crew are employed under those strict guidelines that the animals' welfare comes first. Um, occasionally, sharks do steal the bait. You know, when, the, when it's overcast or the water's dirty, they can come rushing up and grab a bait, and it does happen. But I'd say for every bait we lose, we probably manage to get away 
20 other baits from the sharks you know so a big emphasis is put on that we only use natural fiber ropes on the boat to attach the baits to the buoys so very thin ropes that are natural fiber that if a shark break gets hold of the rope we don't get into this huge tug of war with the sharks that then bash into the cages and some guests think it's fantastic when that happens but that's when the sharks hurt themselves and mm. it's really not great for the sharks i wouldn't like somebody dragging me next to a metal thing and hitting my face against the side yeah. of it. and that's the way we try and relate to the animals you know treat them as you would like to be treated yourself um but you know i think a lot of the public has got a misguided idea that you can simply go out there and you'll see great wild swimming around the boat and that, that's not the, the case at all you do need to attract them to the surface and we only use natural fish products to do that we're not taking dead cows out there or mm. horses and all sorts of things small children small children <laughs> some people would like to send us their small children but um no, not, not at all. It's, it's done under strict guidelines, but more than the strict guidelines, it's done under a tremendous love we have for the animals, and we do not want to see them being hurt. Mm. You know, and, and um, I'm one of those people who firmly believes that the only way you get other people to love the wildlife that you do is through the same privilege and exposure that you had That's as it. a kid to actually yeah. seeing those animals. We've run out of time to hear about the Bug Eating Club in Tokyo, but I promise we'll get to that next week. Um, and uh, also next week, we'll be chatting to pet detective Esme Nathanson, who reunites lost family members, as I like to call them. Um, up next, we've got Rookies and Rockstars with Jade and Simba. So uh, be sure to listen to that. I'm sure it'll be awesome, as it always is. And thanks for listening to Heavy Petting here on Clip Central every Wednesday, 10 to 11 a.m. See you next week.